0: This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. On this episode of the show, we head west to talk chucker hunting with Levi Day. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 174. All right, welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week. As always, great show coming up for you with Levi Day, talking primarily trucker hunting, hun hunting, talk a little bit about Levi's background, bird dogs, shotguns, shooting gear. Good stuff with Levi coming up in just a moment. But of course, I want to say thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. Thanks for your continued support of the Birdshot Podcast. We've got another Onyx Elite subscription card up for giveaway on the Patreon monthly giveaway and a reminder that anybody who signs up for just five bucks a month will get a set of Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers as a little welcome package and you're eligible for all of the monthly Patreon giveaways. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, a couple of mentions for Onyx Hunt. Earlier this week, I was assisting my friends at OnX Hunt and Upland Institute, Ron Bame and Justin McGrail. They did a little webinar on dog training, which was very much like some of the podcasts Justin McGrail has done on Ron's podcast. Lots of discussion and question and answer on bird dog training and development with the one and only Justin McGrail. That webinar is viewable on the Onyx Hunt YouTube channel, so worth checking out there. And Upcoming next week, I will be at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp for the Onyx Hunt Grouse and Woodcock Hunting educational weekend, which I'm very much looking forward to selfishly because it's always fun hanging out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, but also looking forward to those that will be attending that weekend. Hopefully, some listeners out there will be at Pine Ridge next weekend. I know I've heard from a few of you. I'm looking forward to being there. It's going to be fun talking bird dogs, grouse and woodcock hunting, shotguns. I might even still have a turkey tag in my pocket. And when I drove out to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp last week, back and forth a couple of times, I saw turkeys every time. So who knows? Maybe my buddy Simon and I will be out chasing turkeys if we have an hour or two to spare. We'll see, but hope to see some of you at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp next week. And don't forget, you can always save 20% on your next subscription to Onyx Hunt using the promo code BSP20. That's BSP20. Save you 20% on your subscription to Onyx Hunt. All right, now for the worst part of today's show, at least for me. Today is Friday, May 13th. Huh, Friday the 13th, which I don't consider myself to be Overly superstitious, and I was born on Friday the 13th, so I've always kind of thought a little bit differently about that day than maybe others out there listening. However, today most certainly feels like a Friday the 13th, as most people would think of it. The Minnesota Wild whimpered out of the Stanley Cup playoffs last night, lost three straight to the St. Louis Blues after having a 2 1 series lead and looking like they could definitely win that series, aside from Kirill Kaprizov, Dalabil Kirill, Kirill the Thrill, absolute superstar, fun player to watch. The rest of the team did not seem to play up to the level that they showed they could play throughout most of the regular season. What a bummer. I went against my better judgment, let myself get emotionally attached to the team, and a first-round playoff exit feels about like a gut punch. But as a Minnesota sports fan, it can't make this stuff up, but surely we could have predicted that ending to the season. The best season in franchise history, by the way. First round exit. Uh, I hate the Minnesota sports negativity, and I usually don't get into that too much, but man, you just can't make it up. On the plus side, being a Minnesota sports fan, I smartly budgeted that $100 I'm going to owe to Will Larson over at the Upland Rookie Podcast right after we made the wager. Had to be prepared for that, so Lucky for Will, his Colorado Avalanche did what everybody thought they would do and swept the Nashville Predators and are seemingly untouchable at this point. It'll be interesting to watch that series against the Blues, see how they handle the team that the Minnesota Wild could not seem to handle. I don't know where I'm at with it. Not a real big St. Louis Blues fan, although I could make an argument that with those three Minnesota Blue Liners, including former University of Minnesota Duluth Bulldog Scotty Perunovic, Hobie Baker winner, national champion. I could be convinced to get behind that team, but not today on Friday the 13th. It's just a little bit too soon. So congrats, Will. The Avs are moving on and the Wild are done. That may be the last hockey update you hear on the Birdshot podcast. We'll see how I feel about it. Maybe we'll talk to Will on a future episode and get a little update from somebody in the winner circle. All right, that's enough. Let's get into today's episode with listener of the show, Friend of the show, Levi Day. Levi is currently out in Oregon, although he will be relocating to another Western state, which he talks about on today's episode. Levi and I have kept in touch, going back and forth, talking shotguns and bird dogs and shooting. And he tends to think about things in a very analytical way, as I tend to do from time to time. And we thought it'd be a good idea to jump on a call and dive a little deeper into some of those topics and i found myself thinking a lot about western hunting and some of the hunts that i have not yet had a chance to do but surely hope to in the near future and wanted to pick levi's brain a little bit on some of his chucker hunting and western adventures so lots of stuff in this episode from levi's background to his bird dogs to shotguns shooting we talk a little bit of gear vest boots which that reminds me go get yourself a final rise vest. If you're in the market for a new vest, that would be a great choice. You'll hear all about it on today's show, so let's get into it. Welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, Levi Day. All right, buddy. It's been a bit of a sputtering start to this, but I appreciate you hanging with me. It is, it is Friday after all. I don't know, it's a good day, man. I hope you're having a good day.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a, a fantastic day for sure.
0: What do you got planned? You, get, you gonna get outside?
1: Oh yeah, I'll get out um, today and and run the dogs a little bit. And then right now we're in the middle of packing up our house, so there's all kinds of honeydews and things to get get going right here. So
0: yeah, so give us give us the brief overview. You are you are in Oregon, right? Yeah, currently, but not for um, long. For the
1: four years I've been. Um,
0: in Oregon,
1: uh, in a small town in North central Oregon. And I recently have, um, taken another position that's moving me back towards home, um, back to Idaho, which I'm really excited about. And, uh, it's pretty awesome. Even that I'm going to be the director of athletics for a small community college there and the mascots, the Chuckers even, so it's a match made. No day. kidding.
0: yeah, <laughs> That is too funny. <laughs> well, I might have to, might have to hit you up for some apparel you know, from your oh, college, yeah, you know
1: wag <laughs> for sure dude
0: you could probably help out their help out their merch department with a few new ideas maybe <laughs>
1: absolutely absolutely it was really funny going through the interview process and some of the stuff that i would talk about with them and um yeah just how it it was definitely a marrying of the two worlds um and yeah it's, i'm really really excited my wife and i are both really really stoked to get back
0: over there that's cool well i'm I'm like fully prepared to sort of dive off the deep end in this conversation, but I I figure we should set the stage a little bit. You're obviously out West and I wanted to talk to you to get a little bit of a Western hunting and, and hear a little bit about what keeps you busy in the fall. But let's go back to the beginning for you a little bit and talk a little bit about how you found your way into upland hunting bird dogs, because as I know you now, you're a you're an avid hunter, you know, you're spending a lot of days in the field every fall and it's clearly something you've dedicated a lot of time, passion, and energy to. So where did that start and how did it develop, Levi?
1: Oh, going all the way back, it's, um, I, I don't, I can't really put my finger on where it all started. I was somebody that was, I was one of the little kids that would go down and, you know, back in the day of renting VHSs from the local, you know, markets that weren't even um, movie stores per se and was renting Gordon Eastman's high, wild and free and was cutting out toy guns out of pieces of OSB and making scopes and putting toothpicks in them and duct taping them to the top. And like all I ever wanted to do was, was hunt. And um, I was fortunate enough to have a grandfather that really fostered that and helped. And and my dad helped to build that, that as well and create opportunity for me. And um, then I, I mean, I started chasing stuff as early as I could. I would run around. We lived on a ranch and then had a bunch of BLM behind us. And um, it was, I had a, another buddy that it was every day after school, we were grabbing the shotguns or the 22s and chasing rabbits or, I mean, every day it was some sort of an adventure. For sure. So it's uh, it's been, been a, a major factor in my life for as long as I can remember, for sure. There was some brief times that because of athletics and things uh, in my life, I was a college scholarship athlete and um that I still got out and hunted but not near as much as I wanted to and just had to devote a lot of time to honing my craft in that area but as soon as I was done with all that I was able to dive right back in and um yeah I all the way up to where now I think last year I did 70 days in the field just um behind bird dogs alone so I awesome. didn't count any big hunting and then the fly fishing i do too i think the year before i tried to keep track because my wife and i were talking about something so i decided i'm a numbers guy which i know uh you can respect too and i think i did 128 days in the field or something so yeah
0: yeah that is definitely uh that is that is something you have dedicated plenty of time to um but i but i absolutely can appreciate that and understand where you're coming from Funny you mentioned the VHS tapes. I've got a funny little story about that. This came up on a podcast that I recorded earlier this month, I think. It was either that or March. Unfortunately, it did not air. I've got to sort of regroup with these guys from the Minnesota Grouse Dog Association. We had some audio troubles on on one of the recordings. But anyways, one of the members of MGDA, Ryan, he, he brought up during our conversation about how he would watch VHS, you know, back back then there we didn't have all the content and youtube and everything we didn't have the the ways to access information or entertainment you know stuff for hunting and fishing so it was it was vhs tapes and there's there's one i used to you know my parents would bring me down to the local video store here video 47th i remember and they would have some like hunting and fishing and i'd pretty much would rent anything but there's a video would you know if i said the name babe winkelman would you know who that is
1: absolutely
0: okay okay i i know he's like he's like a midwestern minnesota guy i wasn't sure how how uh far reaching i mean he's pretty popular
1: oh yeah tnn used to reach its way out here too
0: okay oh yeah yeah tnn outdoors yep yeah i remember yep. that yeah it's espn outdoors tnn outdoors i mean whatever you yep. could whatever you could get saturday morning sunday morning yeah i was i was watching that and and shooting nerf guns and all the same stuff super funny it, it, Ryan mentioned there was a video this he started describing this VHS tape. It was Babe Winkleman. It was called Gunning for Game Birds. And it was like an upland hunting VHS tape. And I I was pretty sure I knew he, what he was talking about. We we eventually connected the dots, but he had seen this and apparently he had been trying to find a copy of this VHS tape and he called the production company and for years. Like he's never talked to anybody that had ever seen it or was able to find a copy. And I'm like Brian like I only he remembered all these other segments about sharp tails and all kinds of other stuff that totally I drew a blank on the only thing I could remember is there was a guy in Canada that had an english setter and he was hunting rough grouse and I mean I watched that like 15 minute segment I don't know how many times and I'm like I'm pretty sure I've got that VHS tape and so after we got done recording I texted my mom and she went digging through the closet, and sure enough, she found it Babe Winkleman Gunning for Game Birds, the VHS tape. And there's that, and there was another one called uh, there's a Tom Hugler video who he's a he's a famous Rough Grouse writer and he's written books and stuff. And so, anyways, my mom dug those those VHS tapes out, and I'm I might see what I can do about <laughs> ripping those and and getting them. But I'm I I was real curious if any of the listeners had ever come across that gunning for game birds VHS tape and had seen that i got to go back and watch because apparently uh there's another local guide around here steve grossman long time hunting guide and i guess he was in that video and i just you know i had no idea who these people were way back when so i got to circle back but i love it man vhs tapes
1: yeah i can completely relate and you know watching fishing shows on tnn or espn mm-hmm. like sometimes my wife's uh a little bit groggy in the morning or going around here and I want to give her a hard time. I'll start singing like the bill dance theme song still. And, uh, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. It's funny how that stuff just becomes ingrained from the time you're a little kid and yeah, they would be on early and I can remember setting an alarm on, you know, Saturday or Sunday mornings and getting up to watch Hank Parker and
0: mm-hmm. bill dance. Yeah. Well, what have you been up to? What have you been up to this spring? Do you like? It's obviously it's April twenty second today. Do you have a spring kind of wild bird season that you were running the dogs earlier this year a little bit? Have you been up to any of that kind of stuff?
1: Uh, I got out a little bit um, towards the latter part of February and early March. Um, Everything's really paired up here right now, so I try to leave them. Um, And I live out to where. It's, it's actually a challenge. It's like the blessing is the curse. There's been multiple days where last year I could literally walk out my front door and um, put dogs on the ground and cover as much country as, you know, I could do 12 miles and never run into anything else but, but birds. Wow, that's cool. So the problem with that is then when I go to, um, like, take my dogs for a walk, it can be a real challenge mm-hmm. because especially my puppy, she just wants to bomb out and go find birds. So I actually right now I have to drive into town and I'll go run the dogs at the golf course where at least then she's just harassing the kill deer. But um, cause there, there'll be days that I'll have, you know, huns in the yard. So right now, yeah, I'm not doing much as far as um, running on birds, but a lot of yard work. Yeah. I've made a couple trips over and trained with George a couple times and been able to help him some with some of the dogs that he's got going and just be a sponge. Really. I mean, anytime that I can sit back and see what he's got going and spend time with him is always a, a fantastic time. So I do a ton of stuff in the yard. Um, it's, you know, every free chance I get, that's kind of where I spend my time right now.
0: Yeah. How about you? Yeah. Same thing. And I, I can, you know, I could, I could easily say the, the woodcock have invaded, uh, the woods where my dogs and I like to get our daily exercise in. And for, for most of the winter, I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but there's a few grouse in there and, but my dogs didn't find them every day. So it's like, we're, we're trying to get exercise really. But you know, if we find a grouse a week or so, you know, it's okay. Well now there's, there's woodcock in there. So yeah, we've been, we had, and now it's April, it's April 22nd. So we had been seeing a few and that were kind of dropping in on some of the patches of open ground. Now we've kind of lost some snow and there's a beaver swamp in there. So yeah, same thing. I'm, I'm getting excited for getting excited for Turkey hunting and, and, Getting excited for this snow to completely melt, which has not happened yet, but it's supposed to be pretty warm and rainy this weekend, so I don't know, fingers crossed. We'll see. But I'm glad you brought up George because George DaCosta, recent guest of the podcast, you, as I mentioned on that episode, were the one that connected me with George and, and said that you had checked out his book and just wanted to thank you for making that connection. Again, obviously, I really enjoyed speaking to George and got some great feedback on that episode, but how how did you and George connect and start running dogs together it was actually just complete
1: happenstance as as a griff and i was living just 30 minutes up the road and i can't even remember where or how i first heard about george um gosh it it escapes me it might have been from frank puccio or something i'd heard the name frank puccio and i called frank and talked to
0: him who's frank um, i feel like i've heard that name too
1: So Frank Puccio is another, um, guy that breeds griffons. Okay. Um, He's the, you heard George talk about the Mr. Brown dog. It's one of the most decorated griffs that actually passed away. I think it's been two years ago now, but, um, was a very decorated, uh, griff and has sired a lot of really great puppies. And Frank was the owner of that dog. Okay. So, I can't remember where I first heard about Frank Puccio either, but I reached out to Frank, I think, and he's who then talked to me about George because I was looking to do some puppy introduction stuff and I didn't have access to birds. And, um, and he told me that George might be interested. So I called George and we just immediately struck up, um, not just great conversation, but had a, a connection and, he's someone that has just been instrumental in everything that I've done with dogs. I've learned a ton from a, a lot of different people, but the kindness that George extended to me, um, I could never repay him. He's just been fantastic. And, um, you know, the relationship just continued to flourish from there to where he's, he's put us on a lot of clinics and I've went and spoke at some of his clinics and um, he allows me to, to kind of tag along and be a wallflower and soak things up. And I don't mind going and doing whatever I can to, to be around George. He's just a fantastic guy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And, uh, and yeah, I'm going to encourage any listeners if they had not heard that episode, go check that out for sure. How did you end up with griffs? Well,
1: it kind of is an interesting story as well. So a good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Steve Speck, he's the, I don't know if you're familiar. He owns uh, S and archery. Um, XO mountain gear. He's one of the developers okay. of them backpacks. Um, he's, a a fantastic guy as well. And, um, I've been friends with Steve for a long time. He's out of Boise and he got a Griff and I just absolutely loved his dog, the demeanor and, um, the way that he was able to go and do so many different things with, with Greta, his Griff. And I was looking for at that time, a dog that I could take and have be my buddy and do everything. In fact, Margo, has, you know, I have called turkeys in and shot birds with Margo. Margo has bear hunted. Margo has been with me on deer and elk hunts. Um, And then obviously, you know, spent a ton of days in the year chasing as many wild birds as we can. So uh, she goes with me everywhere, fly fishing. And I was looking for a dog that was going to be something like that. And she definitely fit the bill in that. And uh, Steve kind of inspired me to look that direction. And yeah, it really worked out great
0: very cool. So had you had exposure to pointing dogs, flushing dogs, anything like that when you were, you know, when you were getting your feet wet upland hunting? I mean, did you know you wanted some kind of pointing dog? I had
1: I had a few exposures
0: and every time, to
1: be honest, they were horrific. <laughs> uh, I was the guy that um, I shot my first chucker at 12 years old. Um, we used to I had a good friend in high school that we flat got after it. I had an old like 86 Ozmobile and we would I mean every day after school we were hunting somewhere and love it. anytime that we would go out or we'd get a group of people together and someone would say they'd have a dog and you know you talk about the evolution of a hunter and what you're after it and at that point in my life definitely we were you know we were all about limits. Yeah. And um him and I would talk about it all the time. We'd love seeing someone show up with a dog because we just knew we were going to we'd kill way more birds than them and i know that sounds funny now to people especially when think chucker like how on earth would you ever find them and it was just you know young and it was sheerly by volume but then there's also specific objectives just like i'm sure if you were to walk into the rough grouse woods you could find birds too without your dog but yeah um yeah so i always looked at it as to be honest with where i was in the evolution of a hunter it was more of a hindrance. and that was completely, you know, naive and and not having a good understanding. I grew up with dogs and having cow dogs and everything on the ranch, but, um, it was definitely not something that I was ready to really jump into. I felt, you know, like it was, um, overwhelming and I didn't have the know-how and the time, and I'd never seen it really done in a way that I considered proper, you know, all my exposure was, was not good. So, I I didn't have a dog for a long long time and then when I decided to go ahead and take the leap and then I just started diving in and decided I was going to be able to do this different and integrating a lot of the training philosophies that I knew from spending so much time around horses and um, then cow dogs as well and uh, was able to start implementing the things that I know and then also receiving help from from George and others around Um, yeah has made it like I can't I can't even imagine going hunting now without a dog. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't go go back. No, not at all. And I think that in a lot of ways it was, it was truly a blessing because, you know, going back again, talking about the the evolution of a hunter, because I, I am totally now where I have no problem doing 12, 14 miles in a day for two contacts. And if those contacts are the right kind of contacts, I'm happy. Like I, I just don't, I don't even need to kill a bird. I kill the birds that my dogs handle well. And beyond that, Like I was thinking about it the other day and I think actually after I listened to the podcast you did with Maddie and the lines between training sessions and hunting sessions. And I don't even think the lines are so blurred with me anymore where I, I I think it's more every time out with me is more of a training session. I prefer to, I love to have other people, but I, I'm the guy that's notorious for like you go on that ridge and I'm going to take this ridge because Mm -hmm. it's just all about, me getting to watch my dogs do what they do. And if my dogs make a mistake, like I have no problem. If I'm walking up on a point and I have a dog that starts to creep a little bit because like my puppy got, she'll get a little bit competitive with me. I have no problem walking right over, picking her up and putting her back where she was and saying, whoa, and if the birds fly away, they fly away. I don't care. There was lots of times this year where I did that, you know, and then was able to walk back over, pick up the shotgun, circle around and kill a bird for her. So yeah, my mindset is just completely different than it ever was and I think I would have done nothing but probably cement my feelings on um the thought that bird dogs were nothing more than a hindrance than a help based upon where I was in the evolution of a hunter in my early years.
0: Yeah. As blasphemous as that sounds, I can relate cuz yeah, I as I've mentioned many times before, I I grew up hunting without a dog and my first experiences with a dog were I had some good ones, but they were you know, kind of head scratcher and they were, there was a friction where it, you know, and it's a bit like just naive, just not understanding, you know, you don't know until you know, but like understanding the dog was just sort of hindering the way that I had developed over a long time of hunting without a dog. And I, I think I've heard people comment about that before. So it's, it's not, not unusual, but yeah, then you, then you spend some time with the dog and You know, if you're if you're lucky, get a dog if you're own and and I think we all kind of know how that story plays out and it sounds like it definitely did for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And being a guy who spends as much time as especially as I used to chasing big game animals, like what the experience needs to be for me, um, is definitely one of solitude and quiet. And um to me I think of it, especially now I've made reference to this quite a few times, but like when I put my dogs on the ground now. For me, it's like I almost hear symphony. Like that's what it is in my mind. And it's a it's a place of I mean it's it's cliche and it's used a lot, but like it's a place of escape. So to be with someone who's yelling at their dogs and like all like that's just was so off putting for me. And I just knew there there had to be another way to to do it in what my eyes seemed to be a proper way. But I just wasn't in a position at that time to do it. And again, where I was all about just seeing how many birds I could whack, um, I could definitely always whack more birds than a guy with a dog.
0: So, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, but that's you. You bring up a good point too in that, you know, not everybody runs their dogs the same way, and you can sort of curate your own experience. But yeah, I'm. I'm much. I would say I'm. I'm much like you in that way where. I, I tend to run my dogs. I'm not saying a whole lot. It's basically just me sort of just watching them work as much as I can. And then i you know, if I'm in the rough grouse woods, I'm looking at the cover and watching the birds when I can't see or watching for birds when I can't see my dogs, that kind of thing. But yeah. And that's not, that's not the same way that everybody hunts or handles their dogs. And yeah. So I, I don't know. I think I, I would be, I would be very happy walking the Ridge opposite you and meeting up, you know, and, Discussing the hunt at the end,
1: absolutely, I mean the tailgate time is irreplaceable, and I mm-hmm. absolutely love, it. but the amount of time that guys like you and I put into our dogs and the relationship that you have with them like for me they're they're part of our family I mean they um my wife and I don't have kids, and you know Margot is like which is my griff the sun rises and sets, and my wife's eyes with Margot, and Josie, my little short hair is um just my little buddy, you know, and she goes everywhere with me. And yeah, they're just such an, an intricate part of our life that to, to make it about anything else for me is I just, I have a hard time with that and um, I want to give them every opportunity to be the best they can be. And in my personal opinion and limited experience, it just really seems like the human factor is always the, the factor that causes more issues than um, the dogs ever had. So Um, I'm just really selective and who I usually go with and, um, the people that I will let hunt over my dogs and, um, because I just want to see them be the best that they can be. And, um, I just really enjoy that time and, and letting them do what, you know, express the work that we've done and, and also, you know, that genetic potential and it's just super rewarding for me.
0: Yeah. You know, like when you, when you do hunt with somebody new, I mean, there's a, you're, you're taking a risk, right? Like you don't know how the, you don't know how the day is going to go, but that risk is necessary to, you know, to maybe find, you know, that next hunting partner or that person that you really enjoy days in the field with, but it's, you just never know that first day with, with somebody new or, or different, or uh, it's, that's, that's part of the game. But when you do find somebody that kind of sort of sees eye to eye with you, or at least goes about it in a similar way, and you can, you can have that, then you know that that's when you get those those tailgate sessions, and I mean, shoot, that's why one of the reasons that pulls us out there for sure.
1: Yeah, it is super challenging. You know, I've done quite a bit of guiding, and um, it's interesting that like I don't get as particular when it. I mean, obviously you don't have the option, but uh, sure. particular when I'm I'm helping guide because it's such a controlled environment. You know, when you uh, like, I'll help out at some put and take places and. I have the opportunity then to always make sure the dog's right, and I'm not carrying a gun. Yeah. And that's it's just different. But when you go to run on wild birds, and I I totally understand it, and I get why people, um, are this way, you know. But you spend as much time, especially chucker hunting. Like, I mean, I was talking to my wife, and we started kind of adding it up. And I think this year, I averaged right around 40 miles a weekend, you know. And when you put those kind of miles in in chucker country, it's like. <laughs> I get why people want to shoot at them, but I'm way more hesitant to take or to go with people um on wild birds than I am in a in a more controlled situation sure. for sure.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Do you how how often do you and your wife hunt together? So, this last year was her first season. Okay. Cool. And, um she has just been someone who's kind of dipped
1: her toe in and it's slowly starting to take hold. She actually shot her first chucker this last year awesome. and um, yeah, it was, it was fantastic and got to kill it over, over Margot, And um, that's what she wanted. She was like, I want to shoot a bird over Margot." So um, she did not come from a hunting family, um, but she's, you know, we've been married now for 16 years, but it's been a, a slow evolution for sure. And I think her then going, and watching, which she's done a fair amount, but I would say, no, I think she only got out this year. She might've got out total of of walking with me and carrying a gun 10 or 15 times. So it's been, it's been a slower evolution, but she's definitely expressing that like she's wanting to do it more and she's seeing the joy and she's been out and shooting some clays. And it's been really cool to watch the progression that she's had and um, to see her find the joy in that. So no, You know, I, I spend a lot of time, I hunt with, um, my buddy, Tristan Henry, Mm. and then I hunt, uh, with another good friend of mine, Tony Guisto, and sometimes with his brother Mario and, and Nate Akey a little bit, but I would say, you know, 80 or 90% of the time I'm, I'm run solo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can appreciate that. I, I don't know how many, I don't necessarily take notes of who I'm with. I could probably figure it out, but I don't know how much time I spend, with other people or by myself, it's a lot by myself, afternoon hunts, getting out there and just running the dogs and stuff. I was mentioned on, uh, talking to somebody else the other day about how, as much as I love October, October is kind of madness. You know, it's, there's lots of, there's the annual grouse camp weekends and all, all that kind of stuff. And that's when everybody's living the dream. I mean, it's a blast, but I really have come to appreciate the November, December, as long as the hunting conditions stay right. Cause then everything's kind of slowed down and it's usually just me and the dogs. And that's, those are some of the best hunts of the year, but no, that, that's very cool. It, obviously it sounds like you, you were not uh, pressuring your wife in in trying to speed her along and just sort of let, let it come to her naturally. And now she has the interest. And obviously the dogs played a big role in that. So that's, that's really neat to see how somebody could, you know, find that inspiration just by association being close to those bird dogs for a long period of time.
1: Yeah. It's been a, a really awesome evolution. And my wife is someone who's really, really, um, excels from a culinary standpoint mm. and she loves the food, all things wild. And, um, it's, it's, just the way that you and I think about shotguns and dogs. And like, I'm a guy who has a shotgun in my hand literally every day. Um, she is that way when it comes to all things culinary. So cool. Continuing to, to want to search for that deeper connection with her food, um, not just in the fact that, you know, her dogs were able to to go out and do that and her husband brought them home. But for her to actually take a more active role in that has been probably one of the most intricate parts of her deciding to move forward with that. I don't think it has much to do with me. It's definitely more about a love for food and, and the dogs. But it's been really, really awesome. It's also, you know, it's trying for sure. Um, I think we forget. When we've been doing something our entire lives, um, it's the little things even that we don't realize that, that they are actually a skill set mm-hmm. and something as simple as how to navigate terrain. And like, I, I don't even think about it and I just go, you know, but again, that's, you wouldn't think that walking in, in terrain is, is a skill set and, you know, you boil it all, all the way down to it's... the the most simple components are still skills that you've had to acquire and foster years. And, um, sometimes being able to take a step back. And I'm sure you as a father have experienced that too, being able to take a step back and go, wow, you know, I, I need to teach this and that's, that's important. It's an important concept too, as as well. So yeah, it's been super rewarding for, for us on all fronts. Um, I love the time that I get to get out with her
0: and, uh, that's
1: awesome. I look forward to more in the future. That's cool. Yeah.
0: There, yeah, there's a comfort level and a confidence level that again, it just becomes, you know, inherent in, in what you do, but taking that step back and somebody that doesn't have that, it's a, it's a totally, it's a feeling of uncomfortableness. And we all know about stepping out of your comfort zone and how that feels like and how it, you know, it does lead to progress and learning and development, but it's uh it's, it is challenging in its own right. I get reminders of that every day and. the, watching my eight-month-old son like even just you know watching him try to pick up an object and how you're kind of like the light bulb goes on like wow he you know he still has to develop all these motor skills and everything i mean it's just uh it's crazy but (laughs) very cool right
1: yeah that's awesome
0: all right so we're going to transition a little bit let's I'm curious. You're going to be move, you're moving from Oregon now to Idaho. Obviously, those states are right next to each other. But how much is your upland hunting, if any, going to change? Like, are you? How much do you know about where you're going? And obviously, you got you know some new adventures ahead of you and some new ground to explore. But do you think? I mean, is it going to be a lot of trucker, a lot of huns, same same kind of hunting? But what are the differences potentially?
1: Yeah. So I would say the lion's share of what I'm going to do is going to be the same. Okay. Um, there's gonna be a new country, but I'm actually moving to a town that I lived in for nine years. Okay. So I know the area and I've been around the area for 25 years. So I know a lot. There's still a lot left to be explored. Um, and I'm really excited about the, the opportunity to do that. But no, chucker and hunt hunting will make up probably 90% of what I, what I do. Um, I just... Again, I haven't had an opportunity to hunt every bird there is, yeah. um, any stretch of the imagination. But for me, there's just, I mean, sharptails, I would put them right there with them. But they're just a proper game bird in my mind. They just, um, the manners. Huns they, or chucker? Ch- I think chucker more so than huns. Okay. I appreciate huns run a little bit, but not so much like, you know, a pheasant. They're enough to, to challenge a dog. Um And it gives me a great training opportunity. Like, I love that about Huns that'll try to run away from my dogs a little bit. Mm -hmm. But Chuckers are just, they're just so honest. And I I absolutely love that about them. Now, of course, you can find ones that aren't. I'm pretty fortunate in that, um, you know, I have access to places that allows me birds that don't see a lot of pressure sometimes. And then also, uh, I seek out places that a lot of people don't because maybe the numbers aren't as high or the difficulty to get into some of them. So being able to, to get those contacts for my dogs on birds that just are so honest is, is so rewarding for me. I love the table fare of chucker. I love the difficulty of um, really from a wing shooting standpoint, I haven't found a bird that is, you know, that can even compare. So I I love that for sure. But I'm, I'm really excited. Like I alluded to earlier, uh, try to get up and, and, experience some, some more forest grouse hunting with my dogs so we're going to be fish out of water and it's going to be awesome talk about comfort zone <laughs> yeah <laughs> I there you to go. Yep. To go, gave it a go with some buddies of mine and I took this picture and it was like um I think I captured it, I don't know I put it on Instagram or something that was like you know a bunch of chucker hunters trying to be grouse hunters and like we're we're sitting there together and our dogs are you know how it is it's the typical it's like a Christmas card where you can't get the kids to hold still oh yeah the dog all <laughs> you know Look ridiculous, and yeah, we walked around aimlessly, and you know, I heard a couple birds fly, but it was like,
0: gosh, we we have no freaking clue what we're doing. So, <laughs> it's it's such a it's such a different feeling when you're doing something like that versus you know your your bread and butter, like like the way that you would feel confidently be walking around your trucker covers compared to that. You know, it's, you know, it's yeah, it's just interesting. Yeah, yeah, it really is.
1: Um, I I felt that way a little bit.
0: I, last year we went up to
1: montana and i, I got to hunt sharptails for the first time and that was that was awesome too but it's still just different to me than it is looking for forest grouse like the forest grouse thing just for me for some reason my brain can't comprehend it yet so hopefully yeah. we'll we'll get it figured out
0: well that there is i mean there's some stuff too and, and i don't exactly know what the cover looks like out as much out there but when you're switching from open country to dense cover, I mean, that's, that brings on a whole, a a different level of claustrophobicness and and all that kind of stuff. It's it's a different feeling than, than I'm guessing the, some of the scenic views and vistas you're, you're used to.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that, you know, just using some intuition, definitely looking at topography and just trying to figure out it's, it's really amazing how many of these things are so similar, but yet so different, Mm. you know, and, and in, across all worlds so you start talking about chucker hunting like i know a lot of guys that are chucker hunters that are also big game hunters and the two marry up very very well yeah um, being able to read and understand habitat and country that it's going to produce and hold birds is very similar to that which patterns that big game animals are going to exhibit as well so i think that the the two worlds really do marry even though they couldn't be further apart you know, that Venn diagram is still present for sure. And that middle ground exists. And I think it, you know, again, just my personal opinion, uh, they probably do as well with the forest grouse. And once I get in there and start kind of tearing it apart, uh, it, it won't be as bad as I've got it thought in my mind. But right now with the limited experience that I've had, and that I've only been out a handful of the times and
0: have yet to shoot a pointed forest grouse. So We'll get it figured out. But. Yeah, I'm sure you'll 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 do all right. I do want to, I want to get your thoughts on, like talk to me about what, like a, maybe an ideal chucker cover, and then we'll get into to huns. But I'm just kind of curious, like sort of cover elevation, that kind of stuff. Like if you're you're going out for a hunt tomorrow, you're going to your favorite spot. What does that look like?
1: Gosh, this is the thing that's really awesome about chuckers. It's like it's not any help when you tell people, but yet. Yeah, You know,
0: maybe it is.
1: The different covers that I hunt are so diverse. Mm, Last year, I chased Utah with Matt Davis. I hunted chuckers in Idaho. I hunted chuckers in Oregon. And um, those habitats, although similar, vary incredibly. So um, in Utah, it was legitimate sheep country. You know, giving a specific elevation that those birds were at would have would give you no correlation then of where to find birds in Oregon. Interesting. If I, yeah, it it really is. Now, when you look at the landscape, yes, you're going to see some similarities. You know, you're looking for um, some green up early cheat. You're looking for some dense sage. But then, depending on whether there's snow or not, you know, you're looking for south facing aspects that where those birds can can be able to to feed on the green up. But okay. so to give you an example, the birds that. Um, we found when I went and hunted with Matt, we're clear up in the craggy rocks where literally you would expect a bighorn sheep to be. I think we climbed 2000 feet from the base to the top. I wanna say the elevation had to have been right around 7,000 feet. Now, where I live right now, I'm at 2300 feet and it's on the breaks of a river. So the breaks country, um, you're looking at long, long ridges, big steep drop-offs. Those birds really like to hang in the transition areas. Um, I find a lot of birds right off the tops. So the top ends of this country might look CRP-ish. And then as you start to roll off into the draws, you're going to have some some thicker cover. Uh, depending on weather patterns and what's going on, um, if we've got nice days, you know, those birds are going to be located, it seems like, for me. And some of that might have to do with time of day that I'm actually chasing them. But most of the time, I'm going to find them right in the transitions coming off the tops down to the side hills and into some of the heavy cover it's very seldom that i actually find chucker in big heavy dense sage mm-hmm. i do sometimes but um, not as often as i would in the transition zones
0: if we can talk about topography a little bit in an in a relative sense knowing that it, you know it's going to vary from region to region area to area if you're if you're in a spot and you've got elevation How do you approach that? Do you want to get to the top and be on top and have your dogs casting off and down to the sides? Do you want to be on the side hill? How do you you approach topography in a general sense? Well, the
1: correct, uh, the only way I can think to answer that is yes. I mean, (laughs) and, and I don't, you know, it really depends on where you're accessing. So for example, in Utah, you accessed from the bottom and yes, the birds are at the top. I mean, a lot of that obviously has to do with where's pressure coming from. Pressure's coming low. Birds are going to move away from it. Um, If you have an opportunity where you're starting on top, though, some of those birds are going to move down more towards the bottom, depending on how much pressure they've had. But it is not uncommon for me to find birds in the upper ends. Um, So like my general rule when it comes to, and again, this is just my personal experience, I think of chucker a lot like elk. I find elk in the upper thirds of all the ranges in the basins well. I'm going to find Chucker relatively in the same spot. So, yeah, I'm going to always look for the path of least resistance mm-hmm. for myself. Um, I'm very fortunate in that I have two dogs that, that really will punch into the country, one especially. Mm-hmm. And then my seasoned dog, who doesn't run quite as big, is very much objective-oriented. Yeah. She's got a lot of days in the field, um, and the majority of which have been chasing Chucker. So she she has identified country that she knows Chucker are going to be in and my short hair who oftentimes my watch this year read in miles not in yards mm-hmm. just is sheer volume yeah she's going to cast off down into either side and she'll go clear to the bottoms and come back up and we can work these big long ridges then where i can stay up on top then only drop any in when i'm walking to a point it really just depends on where you're accessing the country sure and what the country looks like i I hate to, you know, I, I'd love to be able to give listeners a, a more definitive, like, this is where you go look for chucker habitat. You know, like I, I hear you guys talk about rough grouse and certain types of vegetation that need to be present, and obviously, water and stuff like that. But even with chucker, what can be difficult or not difficult, more refreshing, is that once you start getting some moisture, it doesn't take much. Like, those birds aren't congregated around water in the, like they are in the early season. You start hunting chuckers and late November, December, they literally can be anywhere. So like that's the blessing is the curse, right? Yeah. And it really does come down to looking at those specific objectives where you're looking at transition zones, rock outcroppings can produce. I think a lot of people like to talk about rock outcroppings. And for me personally, I, I they can produce. I don't know if they're as big of an objective as they've been made out to be, but maybe that has to do with the fact that Literally, it is hard to describe like where to find them. It's I really relate it to like chasing sage grouse. People look at sage grouse and they see the sagebrush tea, and there's like, oh my gosh, where could they possibly be? And there's mm-hmm. subtle nuances in that, but they are really, really hard to articulate.
0: Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Naduski, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many Upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the Upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit function and aesthetics to your liking design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with upland gun company today visit uplandguncompany.com i would that that resonates with me a lot because i i went sage grouse hunting one time in 2018 and i was with some some folks that had done it quite a bit and as much as they were trying to articulate those subtle differences and part of it's just we didn't see enough birds to get that you know to really connect the dots in my mind, but it it totally felt like we're walking through a sea of stuff that all looks the same and we stumbled into some birds here and we stumbled into some birds there, but yeah, I absolutely get that.
1: Yeah. And as later season, you know, or as the season progresses, it does get a lot easier to start identifying
0: specific zones
1: because snow becomes a factor, right? So we're starting to look at South facing aspects when you can cut the country down, um, by a, a, a large percentage, of course, it makes it look a lot easier. But early season for people, they just look at these mountain ranges or these big, deep canyons and they're like, my gosh, they could be anywhere. And yeah. the truth of the matter is, that's correct. Yep. Like they could be. I found them in the most unassuming places, all the way down to the places that you look at when you pull up and you're like, there's going to be a covey of birds there, and there is. So it's, it. I really, really, they're akin to elk again. You know, the old saying is you find them where you find them or elk are where they are. And man, yeah, there, there is again, some subtle nuances, but it's still, you just never know.
0: Yeah, I was ju- I was just gonna say that I think it's probably been said about every game bird and perhaps every game animal. Grouse are where you find them. chucker are where you find. <laughs> I mean, yep. But there's obviously there's truth to that because you do it enough, you're gonna you're gonna see birds in places that you weren't necessarily expecting them. But the idea is understanding where concentrations might be, and you know, over time, where you have where you have seen frequencies of birds that would would bring you to those spots. And then throughout your journeys to those areas, you're going to find birds in places that you don't expect them. And I mean, Hey, that's, that's part of the fun, right? Right. For sure. I mean, if
1: someone was brand new and they're like, okay, I want to be able to find chucker. what should I do? I think the easiest piece of advice I would give them is if you're, if you're starting in the bottom or it doesn't even really matter where you're starting is think about pressure, Where's pressure coming from? If pressure is, if everybody's accessing from the bottom, obviously most guys, you know, they say the ag- average big game hunter goes in a mile and turns around. Uh, I would probably assume that the average bird hunter is relatively the same. Yeah. So you're, you're not going to find much in the first mile or two miles. And I would definitely be pointing to the tops, like get to the tops as quick as you can. If you've got dogs that'll punch out into the country a little bit better. Um, it's, it's obviously going to be a lot easier on you to do the big climb first and then walk the long ridge and see what you can produce. And then I would also, you know, weather is such a huge factor because we can have such varying temperatures Mm. that time of year. You know, you can have 12 to 15 degrees at night and then be, you know, high thirties or forties in the day. Well, Those birds are going to want sun and want warm, which is also going to help, you know, show you that that south facing aspect is probably going to hold some birds as we're going to the the new green up is going to shoot up. There's going to be food. But the heavy, dense cover, if you're early in the morning or later in the evenings is, you know, the birds are going to be going to roost and looking for protection. So some of those straws that hold a little a little more sage or some isolated island pockets of dense sage cover could potentially hold birds. And that's where rock outcroppings kind of come into play again, too. But. Time of day,
0: weather, and then wherever the access is, you know, thinking about getting away from pressure is going to be pivotal. So when you, when you mentioned the outcroppings before, I did want to clarify, and I think you just did, but what is it that would, would be significant about those? Is it, it's a place where birds could go to maybe get some sun and warmth. Is that kind of the draw there? Potentially. And also
1: it can be roost cover. Okay. yeah. And then sometimes they can find you know small pieces of rock you know and grit those birds are eating grit, but most sure. of the time we're looking at
0: it for for cover um, for them as roost roost spots how much do how much do food sources play a role and I'm coming at this from the perspective of rough grouse hunting here you know we have i mean especially in in Minnesota I feel like um and I guess the areas that I frequent they're not this, it's not the same everywhere where we don't necessarily have, uh, like fruit bearing shrubs, a ton of fruit that is going to pull in birds like a magnet. So kind of like the way I look at it is like, there's, there's pretty much food everywhere. So I'm not always trying to isolate a specific food source. I'm just going where there's high quality habitat and assuming there's going to be food there. Is that in any way similar to how you think about food or do you identify food sources and go Inspect them.
1: I would say there's a lot of similarities to that, but it also depends on time of year. Yeah, um, yeah. If we've got snow on the ground, again, those south-facing aspects are going to be opened up to where there is more food. Yeah. I would say thickness of cover it relates more to sharp tails. Um, in that regard, you know, if you've got a place that's been heavily overgrazed, there's not enough cover to hold the birds. But that being said, I've also have some places that um, I've flown into in a Super Cub that look like there's absolutely no cover at all and there's tons of birds right, still. So right. I I don't know, I I think that the snow is gonna be the, the biggest limiting factor on that. Um, otherwise, early season, yeah, I, I think it's a lot like the rough grouse thing, that food, food is definitely everywhere um, within the type of landscapes that Chuckard normally are going to be in. Yeah. So you know, cheat's a pretty prevalent thing and it
0: makes up a large majority of their diet. Uh, that's a good takeaway. All right, man, we've been talking a lot about how to find chucker, where you might find them, the approach that you take to that. Let's talk about what happens when you do find chucker. You've got a dog on point. Some of the things that you think about in that moment that we all hope to achieve, right? Dog on point or dog, dog making game, depending on what kind of dog we're hunting with. How, do you, how does Levi approach that situation when you have hopefully found some birds?
1: Well, the first thing that I do
0: is I'm not, I see a
1: lot of people that are, are in a hurry. And again, I think it goes back to our earlier conversation with what I want out of the situation, what I want out of hunting anymore. Sure. And for me, when it's about the dogs first, I'm not in a hurry. Um, when I get a point alert, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm making my way there. I'm not stopping to eat a sandwich first, but once I get to where I can see the dog, I take into account several different factors. The first being terrain in that not necessarily how i navigate to the dog but where i believe the birds to be based Mm -hmm. upon wind direction and then knowing habits of chucker chucker tend to always want to get down and away especially if you're hunting in steep country so and then with the wind at their back ideally so makes sense if yeah so if i have um and then also taking into account, when we talk about wind direction, we talk about thermals and yeah. where wind directions are going to be during certain times of the day. But if I have a stiff breeze coming back up a canyon and I have a dog that goes on point 50 yards below me and I'm up walking the ridgeline, that transition that we talked about earlier that generally holds birds. If I make the mistake of just dropping down or being in a hurry and going to the dog, even if I'm 15 to 20 yards off at of either side. The first thing that's going to happen is, is about the time that I pass the dog, those birds are going to get up. Well, those birds aren't going to be most of the time, especially with pressured birds, are not going to be off the end of that dog's nose if they're in a covey. If you're picking up a single here and there, sure, chucker will hold extremely tight and a dog can pick up a single off the end of its nose. But the majority of the time, those birds are going to be have some distance between them and the dog. So you're already talking about a bird then that's 35 to 50 yards out. And that covey gets up and they're going down and away and you have, on, you know, poor footing. Um, it's a, a violent eruption when they get up mm. and they've already pretty much put you out of range. So people throw the gun up and they shoot and every now and again, sure. We kill one, but oftentimes I see a lot of people drop legs and trucker are extremely hardy birds. And, it's just not a very productive uh, method of going in or methodology from a wing shooting standpoint. So for me, if I've got a strong breeze going up, I'm going to circle down around the dog. This okay. is another thing that I love about Chucker, where they are so have they show so many so much manners around pointing dogs and are honest. Um, most of the time, they'll give you the opportunity to drop down and get around unless you're obviously exposed on a ridge top. But I try to keep to where I can see the dog to some degree, but I don't mind walking completely away
0: from the dog to where I can't see him. Again, you have to have some trust in your dog. But so you're, try- you're trying to minimize your the visuals that the birds may have on you, right? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I don't want them to see me. So I will circle down around and most of the time either try to come in from the side at the level that I believe that they are or and if it's in really steep country, that's usually the, the option that I take. And if it's not as steep, a lot of times I love to pinch the birds between me and the dog. Yep. And especially then where I'm on the downhill side, those birds are going to get up and they're going to go right over the top of me. Now, footing can be sometimes tricky with that of shooting directly overhead, but it definitely presents an opportunity then to be far more accessible or successful. I like to think of it as I'm Tristan and I talk about it quite a bit that like, if they show me their bars, they're dead. So, you know, the big black bars that Chucker have on the side of them, it's a far more presentable target for yeah. sure when they show me their bars. If I can't see them and they're down in a way, man, the toughness that those birds can exhibit, is just unbelievable. So I think that people really need to spend time in thinking about looking at what to do once the dog is on point because wind direction, topography... Play such a huge role when it comes to chucker hunting that a lot of people that come from the prairie country even come out where you know you've got a, a covey of sharp tails on point. Sure, there's some strategy, but it's 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 wildly different. And if I think people always keep in mind that escape routes for chucker are down and away um, will really help to pay dividends for sure.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, if you've got a bird has a has a real preference for that kind of escape route. You know, it's it's natural to to try to use that to your advantage, right? And yep. and you're speaking my language, talking about pinning the birds between you and the dog, and and getting uh getting you know, I'd given the choice, I'd much rather shoot at a up at a rising target than at a target that's down low and away. I mean, that's how that's how my my guns are set up to shoot rising birds and you know most upland guns are so yeah that's that that is a very very good insight and i imagine obviously the challenge is the terrain and the topography making that making that hard to do at times but as much as you can i'm going about my rough grouse hunting in a very similar way and that's the game within the game if you've got a dog on point as you're moving in you're in real time analyzing the cover and the situation and and hopefully the wind and all those factors as as best you can trying to pinpoint where those birds might be and then once you sort of make that estimation it's how do you how do you try to put yourself in the best position when you as you imagine a bird leaving that spot right
1: absolutely absolutely and again those are just my experiences but man it, it really seems like it completely changed my ability to to have shots that were not only more ethical, but produced Mm. far more for me and for my dogs. And then getting to a point where I would just take a deep breath and realize like, I don't need to be in a hurry. And again, going back to that kind of more training mindset of that, not only then am I, I have to have patience and, and believe and trust in my dogs, but knowing that I'm setting them up for a much better opportunity as well. So, and then if you're finding those birds, the other thing that I think about, if you're finding them in in situations where maybe it's not as you know big and steep maybe it's a little more rolling terrain then i always think about prevailing wind um and i want to push the birds up into the prevailing wind Mm. um they have a tendency then to want to have the wind at their back so if i catch them up in a crp or something like that um i'm definitely circling then to where i'm pushing them
0: up into a stiff wind and they're probably would that naturally kind of push them high bring them right back to you yeah yeah yep yep high and and bring them back and yeah, it, I mean, easy to imagine a situation where if they've got a tailwind and they've they've got an escape downward. I mean, that's going to be very challenging for you and obviously throwing the throwing the dog factor and all the safety and everything. Yeah, that's that's going to be a harder Absolutely. harder go.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So what what do you think about when it comes to shotgunning shooting for chuckers, what makes an ideal chucker hunting gun for you? What characteristics are you looking for? as far as weight, you know, all that stuff, what comes to mind?
1: This is a, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past and Mm -hmm. it's such an interesting conversation that I, I don't fully know if I have a concrete stance. So I do know that one of the biggest factors for me that I factor in and what gun I'm going to to take. So I have a 12-gauge, a 20-gauge, and a 28-gauge. My 20-gauge doesn't get very much work. My 12-gauge is a Beretta Silver Pigeon 3, um, and then I shoot a Rossini round Roundbody EM and the 28-gauge. The number one factor for me that I think about of what gun I'm going to pull out is terrain. Now, it's not in regards to what most people would think. Most people would think about taking the, you know, well, yeah, it's big and steep, and you're going to, let's say we're, you know, It's no secret. Everybody knows about Hell's Canyon. So you're going to go hunt Hell's Canyon. 90% of the time, I'm not taking the 28 gauge. I'm carrying the heavy gun
0: Hmm.
1: or heavier. I'm going to run the 12 gauge. The reason being, again, is that with Chucker, the deeper the terrain, the more we seem to get strong prevailing winds. Strong prevailing winds are going to create more scent for birds. Um, My dogs have a tendency then to, and maybe this is just my experience with my dogs, um, and some of the other dogs that I've hunted with, but they will have fines on those birds at farther distances. So it's not uncommon for my dog to go on point or other dogs that I've hunted with at 50 or 60 yards from those birds. Sometimes the terrain doesn't allow me to get into perfect position where I'm pinching birds between my dog. So if I know that it's going to present opportunities for a little bit longer dots uh, where the birds are already getting up at 30 yards, the advantage of the 12 gauge is undeniable. Mm. again, with that said, I, I'm not a guy who's a big advocate of you know the big 12 gauge loads. I, I just don't, from all the pattern testing I've done and the work that I've done with them, and maybe I'm just a, a ninny. I, I don't enjoy the heavy recoiling of an ounce and three eighths at 1450.
0: Like that, it's it's not something that, that sounds um, like such a heavy load.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I, I mean I just can't. Yeah, I, I don't like like shooting them. I don't even. I mean I run an ounce and an eighth yeah. of sixes. And um, out of the 12 gauge, the pattern's absolutely spectacular. And having that extra weight, maybe this goes back to, you know, my experience in the big game world and the rifle world, I've done a a lot of long range shooting. And I know the disciplines are, are wildly different, but at the same token, there's something to be said for that gun that offers a little bit more weight in counteracting high heart rates, um, uneven terrain, um, the ability to swing smooth as in comparison to the lighter weight gun. Now, obviously, we're talking about different payloads and um, different terminal killing power with the two at, at, at those distances. But I find personally that if I'm hunting in country, that is going to present more difficult shot angles i'm taking the 12 gauge every time
0: yeah i like i like the the thought process there. thinking you know potentially i mean the wind factor is really interesting that's something that i i haven't thought about in the same way obviously because it's not it's not that kind of a factor i don't think but to a certain extent you know windier days i could easily relate to windier days make for jumpier birds generally further shots you know that's that's something that Mm -hmm. i don't think that that specifically applies just only to chuck hunting i think that's a great observation and yeah to your point the 12 gauges is going to be the most effective efficient killer with the most downrange downrange pattern density you know we could we could obviously go down a rabbit hole of all the different variations in in payloads and everything like that but just in a general sense yeah i follow you so what what conditions will set you up to pull out that snazzy little 28 gauge you've got
1: <laughs> well the 28 gauge comes and I shoot it a lot too yep. so but if I guess I just was I, in thinking about that question I was like okay you have to kill a chucker today you know someone says you have to or like when I traveled to Nevada to go with Matt that was I mean some of the most gnarly country ever um, and yeah I don't carry the 28 gauge yeah. um, I'll take the 28 gauge when I'm hunting country that is more forgiving and it's going to present shot opportunities where i know that um, i'm not as exposed to where the birds can't see me as easily which is another huge factor in hunting big steep country right as soon as you go up on a ridge top, everything mm-hmm. around you can see you yep. so when i'm hunting a little bit um, more forgiving country i'll have a tendency to pull out the 12 gauge or the, the 28 gauge excuse me um, i feel like that with my dogs have a tendency to, to really punch up into the, the scent cones a lot stronger, and I have much more of an opportunity than to put an approach on where the birds cannot see me or it conceals my positioning until I'm already in a position with the 28 gauge that is well within its effective
0: range, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. That's uh makes a lot of sense in in, in thinking about it that way, just knowing that if you you have the idea that you're going to have shots that are that are going to set up better for you you know you've in theory you've got less less effective range with with the 28 gauge so you're you're going to use that in those situations whereas another situation where you're a little bit more rugged rough country thinking about maybe not as consistent of a shooting opportunity pull out the 12 gauge right. that day. yeah
1: and it, it's really counterintuitive to
0: what most people say you know I, the general right as far as that weight and carry and everything yeah
1: right that's where people put their emphasis and again um i come from my background is in the fitness world and i've always figured that like so let's say if you really start you know doing the math on things if you're carrying an ounce and a quarter load is really popular in the 20 gauge mm-hmm. for for um chuckers so fine turn and yeah right that's like a yeah, three inch shell basically yeah, that like a 3-inch Prairie Storm. Yeah. If you're carrying an ounce, a box of ounce and a quarter, 20-gauge, and you're carrying a, a Browning Satori that weighs, you know, let's say 6 pounds, 10 ounces or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if I carry a Beretta Silver Pigeon in uh, a 12-gauge that weighs 7 pounds, 4 ounces, and I'm running an ounce and an 8 of 12-gauge, the difference in the weight of the two of what I'm actually carrying is null and void. Yeah but everybody's like, well, the 20 gauge is lighter and that's what I should carry. Well, okay, but what you're actually carrying is, is wildly different. And the difference in, we start, you know, talk about going down the rabbit hole of pattern densities and shot string and all of those other things. Like you're actually putting yourself potentially at a handicap Yeah. by thinking that you're carrying less weight and that that's going to save you and you're having less pattern efficiency and actually having some of that weight in the gun in my experience, um, is very, very beneficial working against, again, we're not walking up. I mean, everybody gets an elevated heart rate walking up on a pointed dog. Mm-hmm. But it's a whole different story when you've done 12 miles and you've just climbed 500 feet to your dog. It, it's, a, it's another element of a high heart rate. Because not only a high heart rate, you can't breathe. And yeah. your footing's not very good. And it's something about having a little bit more weight in your hands to counteract some of that and smooth out the swing um, has really been beneficial for me in my experience. Yeah. So, I, and it's hard because I, it seems like you know I, I really appreciated the episode you did with Lars. And man, there's so many people out there. There's such a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. And but it's just interesting how our experiences can produce different uh, opinions. I guess.
0: Yeah, and I think in general, you know, the more conversations I have like this, the more you learn. It's like at at the end of the day. Sometimes we have to simplify things in our mind in order to just simply make a decision, right? And because right. this whole this this rabbit hole is a good good way to put it of shotguns shooting and ballistics and everything. I mean you can you can analyze it to death and to the point of indecision. So it's it's real easy for me to see how somebody would come to the conclusion, light gun done, decision made, right? I'm gonna right. carry that. But the point that you're trying to make and I think is valid is that there are a lot of factors that go into the weight of a gun, the amount of payload you're shooting, what that does to shot string pattern efficiency. There is a lot there to understand and grasp. So just sort of exercise caution in making a, a general assumption about something. And, you know, you can go as deep as you want to go and trying to learn and understand this. I, it's something that I, I do uh, from time to time, especially when I'm talking to people like Lars and trying to Deep in my understanding of it all. And I, you know, I have an interest in that, but there are lots of things at play when it comes to shotguns, shooting, what you're carrying, how you're getting there and how you're sending those, those pellets down range. That's, it's a big can of worms.
1: Oh goodness! Yes, yeah, and I'm with you. I mean, the knee jerk—I I completely understand that. You know, grab the lighter gun. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I—I I often think about, and I think that it, it's very common with all of us. You know, that are in this game, we are pretty analytical, and we like to research. And I mean, it's—it's a, it's a way to be part of the hunt all year long, yeah. right? Yep, yep. And I love that, and I'm the same way. But then when you do break it down to the lowest common denominator, I think about again—it goes back to talking about fitness levels, like. Let's take the average Midwestern person that wants to come and hunt chuckers. How deep are they going to realistically be able to go? Mm-hmm. So that's something that needs to be a factor. And then the other thing to think about is, is there other things that we could do to mitigate maybe that half a pound? That if, if you're worried about taking a half a pound off a gun, maybe there's other things we could do in preparation to where the half a pound's not as big a deal. But mm-hmm. yet the half a pound being in the gun increases our opportunities of being successful. Does that does that make sense? You know yes, what I'm saying?
0: Yes, hundred percent. When you were talking about the weight of ounces and stuff, it's like, yeah, we might laser focus on the gun just in order to simplify things. But if you take a step back and look at your whole gear setup and in, in your rig, I mean, you could you could start shaving weight in a, a, any number of places, right?
1: Oh yeah, you know, and, and let's like you know, backcountry archery hunters or or hunters in general have been you know pondering this for mm-hmm. the last fifteen years, you know, and companies are making. You know, the the sayings like, you know, you pay a hundred dollars an ounce, you know, to shave weight and all your gear that you're looking at, you know, when you start talking about like backcountry bow hunting or whatever. And you start thinking about that in terms of what you're carrying in your gear. And then again, in your preparation, like if I'm if I'm someone who's physically prepared and working really hard at it and I know that I can get to where the trucker are. I would sure hate to handicap myself by knowing that I was potentially carrying a weapon that w- was not going to give me the opportunity when I drove all the way from Ohio to come to come hunt chuckers because I took the forty thousand foot view and decided to pack the gun that was the lightest gun mm-hmm. instead of the gun that was maybe going to give me the best opportunity when I m- maybe could have tweaked my food intake or done a little bit more work with my fitness or even my gear setup in knowing that realistically um, I'm hunting in January with one dog. Um, do I really need to carry, uh, 32 ounces of water for myself when I'm doing a five mile trip? Mm, Yeah. You you know what I mean? Yep. And I I just think that, um, the 40,000 foot view isn't always necessarily the best way to look at it. And there's a lot of other things for people to consider with when making some of those decisions. Yeah. And I would sure hate to, to do all that work and drive all that way and then be in a situation where the tool that I had in my hands
0: maybe wasn't the most effective to get the job done. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, we could we could throw in a a very shameless plug too for our mutual friend Matt and uh, you know Final Rise vest. You could probably shave shave a few ounces off your your normal hunting. Oh, vest without too. question. <laughs> and carry and carry that weight and carry the load better.
1: Right. Yeah. Not only are you saving weight in what you're carrying, yeah,
0: you're looking
1: at a system that, um, you know, from an ergonomic standpoint, is putting you in a much better position to to be able to cover more country. And then you can start talking about footwear and you could, I mean, mm. there's so many other things that we could look at that um, we just like to oversimplify, I think, and say, well, take the light gun. And for me, it, it, that has not been um, the most productive tool. And I, I believe even if it was in a 12 gauge, I still feel like based on my experiences that having a little bit more weight, and again, we're not talking about, you know, an eight pound sporting gun, right? but having a little bit more weight, really seems to pay off in those opportunities when it comes time to shoot and for me carrying doesn't really i'm carrying the gun broken over my shoulder anyway. so i
0: don't notice the difference between sure. whether i'm carrying the 28 gauge or the 12 gauge or not yeah it doesn't it's all the same i'm not gonna totally entirely leave shotguns yet i have a question with you or about something but you did mention boot i figured i'd probably be remiss if i didn't touch on the the chucker hunters boots what's your what's your brief take on on boots what do you like and what do you look for man that's a tough one so (laughs) i
1: i run a rotation right now i did of um two different boots last year if i base it off of like a flex rating you know uh, so crispy has a flex rating you know one to five one being um more flex five being the stiffest i definitely um again a lot of i'm not a podiatrist by any means but it goes back to the strength of your feet too if you're someone that walks around and wears boots every day Um, You're potentially going to get along with a little bit stiffer boot um, much better when it comes to navigating trucker terrain. If you're someone that, you know, rocks Chacos all the time or tennis shoes, you can probably have more integrity and strength through your feet and can handle a boot that's maybe not quite as stiff. Mm. Um, Chucker live in such a variety of country that, you know, there's nothing worse than going and walking a bunch of CRP or which would be akin to the prairies in Montana and wearing, you know, a boot with a flex rating of four. Like, it's definitely going to put you in a situation where we're having some foot pain. Um, I run a two, a three, and a four right now. If Again, if I base them off of uh, a flex rating standpoint, yep. and it, again, it all depends on what the terrain is and looking at it. A stiffer boot is always going to, if I'm hunting Hell's Canyon, a stiffer boot is going to offer some benefits that, that a, uh, a more flexible boot wouldn't have when it comes to, um, you know, digging your toe in and being able to climb. But a, a good pair of boots is definitely invaluable. If I was, you definitely need to look at something that's going to be waterproof. I'm also a huge fan of wearing gaiters. Um, yeah. not just for the basic reasons that gaiters exist. Um, also from, uh, a standpoint of, of keeping the, your legs warmer. Um, mm. and the benefits that that can definitely have when it comes to looking at people that start having it band issues or, um, other things that might then express themselves and in, in knee pain that really aren't from the knee could directly be mitigated from, you know, wearing something that was helping to keep your legs warm. Interesting. So, um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that for sure. And, um, yeah, I, I, I you have to really look at what fits your feet, right? Everybody's got a, a different take on what they think the best boot is. Right, I, right. I wear a pair of Hanwags that I really enjoy that are a, a little bit stiffer boot. They're definitely lightweight, but um, are a full waterproof boot. They are um, have some 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 synthetic to them and some rubber. I'm a big fan of a big rubber brand. Um, and then I also wear yep. the Crispy Nevadas are a boot that I absolutely love. Like if you were going to buy one boot, um, that I think can—it's a flex rating of three—can um, cover a lot of, a lot of different upland situations, and big game for that matter is as the well.
0: Nevada, um, the Crispy Nevada, is that, it's a little bit shorter, like an eight inch, yeah, maybe. Yeah,
1: it's an eight inch boot. Okay. Um, it's a full leather boot with a rubber rand.
0: Yep. Um,
1: it's just a fantastic boot. Um, I've, again, I, I have friends that are blown away the amount of time. I'm not a very big guy, so um, I'm able to get uh, a lot of. A lot of wear out of my boots or maybe i'm just easy on them i don't know like these some people go through a pair of boots every season i'm about to start my fourth year in a pair of crispy nevadas um, again i alternated them but yeah i did 70 days last year just chasing tucker alone
0: so is that um, how is that for like eight inches not like it's not like a not a tennis shoe but like is that how much are you giving up about in the ankle. ankle support so you've got your ankles fully in the boot at that point yes yeah okay yes and they might be a nine. It's either an eight or a nine. Yeah, I can't. Remember I know that that boot there. has been. It's been in the back of my mind since I hunted with Matt Seidel uh, of Onyx a, a handful of years ago, and that he was wearing those. And I was kind of like, oh, the, you know, I need that. But I was at the time. I was. I, I wear I wear rubber boots here a lot because we we do have really wet covers. But the last couple of years has been dry, and so part of part of me asking you this question was that you know you kind of know where I hunt. Obviously, I don't need. I don't need a super stiff boot here. We don't, we don't have right. nearly anywhere the elevation. And then when I do go out West, it's generally you know kind of rolling terrain. So I was going to ask you like, but but I am in the market for, I want a good high quality, like leather waterproof boot. And I'm just sort of like, I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked into that world a lot in the last couple of years. Yeah. And my gosh, you know, you could get lost
1: in it, I right? Um, I, I think that finding something that fits your feet well yeah. and i'm not saying i um, necessarily a pair but like i think certain brands tend to you know cater to certain foot types Yep. um i think that there's there's a lot of great companies out there right now that are producing you know aftermarket footbeds have improved exponentially i mean you can go all the way from buying you know super feet which everybody knows it's been around forever mm-hmm. to sheep feet which is you know doing custom molded inserts for your feet out of utah and i think they're fantastic as well but if if you're someone that has you know the middle of the road guy who doesn't let's say have any foot issues um i don't ever have much for foot pain i will get some feet pain foot pain if i'm wearing too stiff a boot and too flat a terrain and the interesting thing that i don't fully understand is there's a heat component that's tied to that as well it seems like if it's colder out i can get away with it but if it's mm-hmm. a little warmer like we start getting 45 50 degrees um i'll have more of an issue which i don't i would love to hear if someone could enlighten me on that but mm-hmm. um i really get along well with crispies yeah. um yeah. i think they're a great booth the nevada has been fantastic i've done everything from you know august archery hunts in nevada um i've chased antelope in montana uh, elk in idaho and then you know i've i've I shot a mountain goat in in Idaho. Um, they've been absolutely amazing for everything that I've wanted to do from upland hunting to, to big game hunting all the way across the board. Uh, I wore them in Montana walking the prairies as well.
0: Yeah, good, but, good versatile boot.
1: Yeah, for sure. Another Crispy has another boot that I've been looking at potentially getting as a lower flex rating. I wanna say well they came out with their Ativa mid GTX, which might be a boot that you would really like, especially for That's kinda
0: of like that high top sneaker looking thing, right? Yep, yeah. Yeah. Wes Larrabee had those out when I was out hunting in, on the prairie last year and I think he might have had the ones that were even lower, like tennis shoe like. I think there might is there two versions? Do you know? Does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, they okay. do
1: have a, a lower version.
0: Yeah, and he had the he had the gators. He had gators with him, which was cool. Obviously keep keep the stuff out there, but I mean you know it's a beautiful day out there. It's mid-September. I'm like I'm looking at those things. Like man, I'd love to be cruising along in those things.
1: Yeah, I think um, a good friend of mine, Dan Staten, he rocks them a lot for early season elk hunting, and and really likes them. And they are waterproof
0: um, too. Which like when you look correct. at it, you don't think waterproof, but the idea that you could wear something that light and and be waterproof, and yeah, yeah. it was a, it was appealing to me at least on the surface level for sure.
1: And then they. Um, they had a like a um, I can't remember what they called it it was like a a pro GTX maybe or mm-hmm. something like that that um, had that the less flex rating again so like it was a 2 that looked like it would be a fantastic boot too that would fit the needs of what what you have been mm-hmm. talking about and yeah. then I know the Laponia uh, is a boot that Matt wears a lot Davis that um, also has a flex rating of 2 and he has absolutely loved it, okay. and it laces all the way down to the toe, a really nice good custom fit it has a synthetic uh rand and um just a fantastic boot and again, it's an eight or a nine inch boot that I think yeah would really serve you well in your home terrain as well as when you went out west and We're talking about like you know one point two pounds yeah,
0: a boot, yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, I got some homework to do, but I appreciate that I was I was definitely curious when you mentioned it, I'm we're going to finish up here in a little bit, but you did mention six shot when we were talking shotguns and shooting. Is that, is that kind of your, that kind of your preferred shot size when you're out hunting? Yeah,
1: this is where I overly simplify. Maybe I, I absolutely love the terminal performance of six shot, Mm -hmm. um, and still having a, a good amount of payload out there. And yeah, I, I use six for just about everything. I'm yeah. not a guy that's looking to kill 50 yard birds necessarily. So it it really works well for me for everything from pheasants to quail to um, all all of the prairie grouse. Everything it's it's pretty much what I've run. Yeah, I sh- it's a little much for huns, but I have so much overlap um, for chuckers and huns that I really do like six shot for chuckers. Uh, I know a lot of guys that run seven and, a yeah. and do really well, but um, yeah, I, I like that extra of the six.
0: That was the other thing I was going to ask you. When it comes to hunting chuckers and huns, are you mixed bagging it? Meaning you're getting into these birds on the same walks or is that not even, I mean, I'm just like ignorant.
1: Yeah. It. It, again, it depends on where I'm at. Like, okay. um, we, places I go in Idaho. Yes, absolutely. Mixed bag places here, um, that I hunt in Oregon, um, So if I'm looking at a canyon system, I can look at it and say where we could deliberately go and do a walk for hunts and we'll find hunts. There could be a chucker up there, but let's say with the 80% certainty that any of the birds that our dogs find are going to be hunts. And then the inverse of other country I'd look at and go, okay, there's probably an 85% chance to 90% chance this is just chucker country. There could be an occasional hun, but more than likely it's going to be chuckers, but they could be within the same walk. Like, Mm. you know, you could walk the top end. That is, um, CRP that would be very much akin to, you know, short grass prairie and then drop down into the canyons and pick up chuckers. So yeah, a lot of mixed bag opportunities. Super cool.
0: Uh, when you're carrying the 28 gauge three quarter ounce load of sixes. So I am,
1: I have not spent as much time yet with the 28 gauge okay. and patterning and finding it out. And, th- and this is stuff I can't wait to pick your brain about you. <laughs> enlighten me because I know you have a lot more experience. I've only been shooting the 28 gauge now for a year. Um, most of the um, knowledge that I've gained thus far has just been, especially the, you know, the, the climate that we had the last couple of years and ammo availability has yeah. been really hard. So Matt really helped me. He's been a longtime advocate of the 28 gauge and shot it and he loves a one ounce load. So I wasn't able to find any of those. Um, I'd always been a fan of what Golden Pheasant had done um, yeah, in the, the 20 gauge. Piece. Yep. Yeah. I really liked them. So I picked up a box of seven, eight ounce um, in six shot. And those are, I patterned them and really was happy with the pattern and was able to get a case of those. And those are what I ran all last year. And at this point it hasn't left me, yearning to try anything else other than the fact that I love to tinker. So yeah. um, I'm definitely open and, and nowhere near an expert on the 28 gauge. It's, it's definitely counterintuitive to everything that I know you and I have learned or have talked about when it comes to, um, you know, people that are wanting to run high levels of payload mm-hmm. through, yep. you know, holes that shouldn't be having when We start talking about pattern efficiency and density, but yeah, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think I should be running out of the 28 gauge. The 7/8 ounce load is, has really worked well for me, but I'm definitely. I, it's interesting to me that they're running it at, at 1300 feet per second, at least an advertised speed of 1300 feet per second. Yeah. I, I do wonder if I would gain more going to a one ounce load and slowing it down to 12, 12, you know, 1220 or 1200 feet per second and gaining more pattern density, even though that because of the reduction in speed would help me with that, even though, you know, you are maybe potentially running a longer shot string. I don't know. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, that's a good question. I, I don't have a ton of real world experience with the 28 either. Cause I, um, uh, I've been sort of without a 28 gauge for a couple seasons now, but I I've gone through all those same thoughts and, and I will have a 28 gauge this fall. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm, you know, I'm a tinker like you, and I've got a, I'm looking over across the room here at a box of fioki golden pheasant 28 gauge they're seven and a half shot i I love this is coming from a guy i am a big fan of the fioki golden pheasants i've shot a lot of them in the rough grouse woods specifically in 20 gauge because they make it's a one ounce 20 gauge load which is a little you know it's a little higher payload than the standard seven eighth ounce load you would think of for the 20 gauge only runs at twelve forty five, so it's not it's not obnoxiously fast um it's plated shot Um, I've i've had really good luck with them i've i've shot Paper with it, I've patterned it, but that's about the extent of my expert knowledge on it. Which you know, it is what it is. Like like we we do some patterning, and then we go out and and shoot birds, and we make hypotheses and and theorize about certain things. But I'm I'm definitely not an expert. But I this I'm mindful of of the square load, and I think it's I think it's helpful to understand why you wouldn't want to extend your shot string in to extremes. But then I also am of a mind where, well, what advances have we made in wad and and shot technology, and what can we get away with, right? Because at the end of the day, I mean, pattern density and pattern efficiency is what we're after. And I mean, I want if I pull the trigger on a bird, I want the bird to come down. And so if there's Mm -hmm. if there's uh, if I can if I can increase the effectiveness of a of a gun with by adding pattern density or pellet count and not have detrimental effects, why wouldn't I be interested in that? Right.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, if 25 more pellets between the seven-eighths ounce to to the one ounce, you know, load in the 28 gauge 25 pellets is 25 pellets. And if I slow it down again and I have more density with those 25 pellets too, like, Yeah. yeah, why, why would I not do that? Now? I mean, I shot a lot of birds last year with the 28 gauge. Um, and was very happy overall. It does take restraint, yep. um, in my experience. Um, you know, if you're a shooting machine, like again, we keep talking about Matt, but Matt is a <laughs> a, a fantastic shotgunner. He can do things I can't do, and um, that's that's awesome. But if you know your limitations. Like I was very very pleased with the 28 gauge and what it did, but I do have a hanker into try to get my hands on some one ounce load, whether it's the, you know, the Winchester super X, or I know Rio makes a one ounce load. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's really interesting too. When you start looking at how many one ounce loads companies are making, whether, and it's not just the American companies, Yep, which is fascinating to me. Then yeah. Because B and most makes, time-
0: a, makes a one ounce, 28 gauge load that I have. I had a box of those when I had my 28 and I shot some sharp tails with those. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. It's a bit of a black hole and there's a, there's a podcast um, that I kind of have in the back of my mind that I I want to dive into some of this stuff a little bit deeper in, in sort of like what makes sense when it comes to upping payload and, and what doesn't make sense, right? Right. And it's really
1: difficult when you start
0: talking about it because you really mm-hmm. have to,
1: sometimes being able to articulate it in a manner that <laughs> makes sense is a little bit difficult. Yeah, I would agree. Because, you know, you're constantly trading this for that. Well, what about this or that? And um, you can just end up talking in circles if you're not careful. And at least I can. Um, But, yeah, yeah, I would love to hear something like that. And I think it's fascinating to dive into. And, again, nothing else. It just gives us uh, more opportunity to have our hands on shotguns and trying to hone our craft and becoming better every day and having it be a small part of, you know, the thing that we love. So, you know, it's
0: fantastic. To kind of, to maybe, maybe sum up sort of like the burning question that I have, which I think we both have, and it's logical, is that when it comes to this whole idea of increasing your payload beyond the standard payload for a specific gauge, if I were to shoot a three quarter ounce load of number eight shot at a bird, at a grouse, let's say, and then I also could shoot at that same bird and, you know, and you could do a scientific experiment and I could shoot at that bird with... Seven eighth ounce load or a one ounce load of eight shot through, let's say a twenty eight gauge. For the sake of this example, how much am I hurting myself? Like, because you've got two theories. Like, one is increasing pattern density and pellet count, but the idea that you might be deforming the shot such that your pattern goes to hell—that's that's that's the question that we we all want to know the answer to. And
1: right, and then you start talking about that. How fast are you pushing it? Yes. So if you're talking about a one ounce load at twelve twenty. Compared to the three-quarter ounce load at thirteen hundred, mm-hmm. even if I add have a little bit of pellet deformation or I start to have a little bit more shot string, which one is actually going to produce a more dense target or a more dense pattern? Yeah. Because you know, if we slow it down, we don't spread it out as much.
0: Yes, is less actually more in this case. That I would right. love. I would love to know the answer to that. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Well, I can't wait for you to do some research and share everything. And, I, and if I get, if I can get my hands on some, I'm going to start tinkering too. So. Yeah. yeah. But well. I know a lot of guys, or a handful of guys, that are like really dedicated to the 28 gauge. And I have point blank asked them, and again, this is just a personal opinion. There's people that probably think different. But yeah. is there any need for a 20 gauge, if you compared to a 28? And the if the answer across the board has been. I see zero need for a 20 gauge. Right. You're not giving up anything unless you start stepping up into an ounce and a quarter. And if you're going to go to an ounce and a quarter, why wouldn't I
0: carry my ounce in an A12 gauge and mm-hmm. really yep. have a lot more confidence, yep. me personally? Yeah. It, again, that is it. it is a block. The thing that I always come back to is it's an interview that I had at – and I sort of – I use this, whether or not it's true or not. I mean, if there's anybody out there listening that has a better answer – Um, I would love to hear about it, but I kind of use it as my baseline. And that is when I went to the federal ammunition factory and I interviewed the shot shell engineers, I was kind of getting at this with them. I was talking about the 28 gauge and the square load and everything. And, you know, they kind of not put an end to the conversation, but sort of said, you know, here is the baseline. And that is that as bore diameter increases, so too does pattern efficiency so that, Mm -hmm as your bore size increases meaning 28 20 12 your pattern efficiency is is going to increase so your 12 gauge is going to shoot a one ounce load better than a 20 will better than a 28 Mm -hmm. will and on up the line so i kind of use that as the baseline but then you have to sort of take a step back and say what is the real world approach and say well here i have a 28 gauge i know i can shoot a one ounce load of it and i can kill birds so how what's wrong with that. Right. Right. And to, to some extent, it's just, it is what it is. Uh, you can, you can shoot a one ounce load out of anything from a 28 to a 12 gauge. And, and that's that for the most part. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: yeah. And then it's all the subtle nuances in between and our yes. own personal preferences yes. and terrain and bird we're chasing and sentimental value and there. like all these other factors that, you know, are really hard to quantify.
0: Well, I hope we have a uh, thoroughly, confused everybody <laughs> <laughs> listening. And, and yeah, as, as I mentioned, feel free to feel free to write in and, and share your thoughts on, on this conversation. Cause it is, this is one of those perpetual debates and I don't know, it's, it's a fun one. It's a fun one to talk about for sure. Oh, without question, without question. Well, we didn't, uh, we didn't get into a whole lot of rough grouse cover and habitat type, but given, given where the where we've found ourselves with this conversation. I don't think we need to confuse people any more than this. I uh we can we can chat about that anytime and would love to have you back on the show at some point. Maybe after you've uh you've had a season chasing chasing some forest grouse and have found some success, Levi. Yeah, after you coach me up. That sounds good. <laughs> well thank you for taking the time to join me on this episode of the show, man. This was a blast. I I enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more and, and hearing about some of your Western upland hunting adventures. Um, appreciate it, man. And wish you the best of luck in your move and in your upcoming hunting season. And obviously we'll keep in touch.
1: Oh, that would be fantastic. And thank you so much for having me. It was a, uh, it was an absolute pleasure. It's always great to talk to you, Nick.
0: You are at Levi on Instagram. Yep. Folks can follow you there and see what you're up to. What you and the dogs are doing, keeping busy and in, in those beautiful places out west and yeah folks can follow you there i'll put a link to that in the show notes thanks again for the time hang on the line here a little bit but that does it for this episode of the birdshot podcast thanks for tuning in everybody we'll catch you on the next episode thanks for tuning in everybody that does it for this episode of the birdshot podcast presented by onyx hunt and final rise don't forget to rate review subscribe like and share and we'll catch you on the next episode of the birdshot podcast Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this
1: show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all
0: topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gun It yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.